Father, we're so thankful that you sent Jesus to be our Messiah, our, our King. Lord, thank you that because he's the anointed one, we can expect, Lord, for, to be led in the right way. We can expect, Lord, that um, what, what we need from you and what, we, um, what you've promised to give us, Lord, is ours because of him. Thank you, Lord, that all your promises are yes and amen in Jesus. Thank you that you're redeeming our life. Father, we just pray that you would help us today to draw near to you, Lord, to, to have hearts that are open. We say, Lord, do to us, do in us what we need to be done, Lord, and help us to, to know at the end of this time together that you met us here, that you worked in us the way we needed you to work, Lord. Thank you that you're faithful and we can trust you for that. Yeah, Father, we just pray that you would um, be with us, Lord, as a church, Lord, as a city, as a country. Lord, with all the, um, the ongoing worries and concerns regarding COVID, Lord, help us to have your peace, yes. even when we don't understand what's happening. Yes, Lord. Help us to be loving toward one another, even as we have differing views. Lord, we pray, Father, that uh, you would lead us in the way we should go. We pray, Father, that um, whatever needs to happen to not only keep us safe, but to help us move forward, Lord, would, would happen. We pray, Father, for um, the, the, the struggles that are happening in other parts of the world, Lord. We do want to ask God that you'd intervene. South Africa, Lord, and other, other African nations that are really struggling. It just seems like there's turmoil everywhere there right now lord we ask god that you would you would be merciful to those nations and give them godly leaders we pray the same for us lord give us godly leaders we pray father we pray lord for church camp uh, next week we ask god that you would pour out your spirit on that time that those that are there would be really blessed and encouraged and Lord, those that, that can't go, we pray, Lord, that they, they would uh, be with us in spirit, Lord. And Father, we pray, God, that you would help us to continue to draw near to you. Lord, even after this is over, Lord, help us to draw near to you, we pray. And pray you bless the time in your word together in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 All right, welcome. So glad to see you guys. Welcome. We're going to be in Luke chapter 14 this afternoon. If you want to turn there, Luke chapter 14. Welcome to you guys who are watching online, whether right now or later on. We're glad you're joining us as well. We're continuing our study through the gospel of Luke and at a place where the tension between Jesus and the religious leaders is heightening. Every time it gets a little bit more intense between them. We saw last week how that was the last time that Luke records Jesus 
speaking in a synagogue. We see this week he's having uh, a meal, uh, went to a dinner party, so to speak, with at the house of a Pharisee and the conflict that happens there. And all this is leading us to the point of the cross. It's, it's showing how what happened with Jesus? Why would they want to ever crucify Jesus? And this is kind of all building up to that. It's, a, it's, a, it's Luke's way of recording how Jesus preached himself, brought the good news of the kingdom to Israel first, to the Jews first, and the majority of them said, we don't want this. And as, as we see this, it's easy for us to go, gosh, what's wrong with those people? Why wouldn't they want Jesus? Why didn't they want to put their faith in Jesus? And we can forget or we can miss out on something that the Holy Spirit might want to say to us today. When we talk about unbelief, we usually think about atheists in this country, don't we? The unbelievers, they're atheists. They don't believe there is a God. But it's interesting because when it comes to not believing Jesus, not trusting Jesus, the people that conflicted with him most were religious people. And so what we're going to see is, as he's dealing with the Pharisees today, he's having this dinner party with the Pharisees, we're going to see what I want to call religious unbelief. What does it look like when we say we believe in God, but our life looks different? What does it look like when we are willing to sort of eat with Jesus, but not follow him as Lord? What does that look like? And so this is what we're going to look at today in Romans, or Romans, gosh, I'm really tired. I should say, if you're thinking that we're seeming a bit strange today, just was seeming a bit strange today. <laughs> it's because we are absolutely exhausted because we've been so busy the last probably six weeks. It's been pretty nuts. So for, forgive me if I make a lot of, say a lot of weird things today. We're just really tired. We're going to trust God to still speak through his word. Amen. <laughs> I think I should pray one more time. <laughs> Father, we do ask that you would help me, but also help us to receive what you have for us, Lord. Thank you, Father, that your word is truth. Uh, Lord, it's what sets us free. Thank you, Lord, that, um, Lord, your word doesn't return to you void. So we pray your Holy Spirit would do what only uh, he can do to change our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, let's pick it up. Verse 1 of chapter 14. On Sab one Sabbath, when Jesus went to dine at the house of a ruler of the Pharisees, there were watching him carefully. And behold, there was a man before him who had dropsy. And Jesus responded to the lawyers and the Pharisees saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? Now, if you've been with us in Luke's gospel, you know that this is something we've seen over and over again. Jesus heals on the Sabbath. And the Pharisees, the religious rulers, get annoyed. They say, it's the Sabbath. There's not supposed to be any work. You're not supposed to heal. Here's a situation where he's invited, to, uh, he's invited to someone's house to eat, a Pharisee's house to eat, a ruler of the Pharisees. And it says specifically, Luke records for us in verse 1, that they were watching Jesus carefully. And the idea is they're, they're looking for him to do something. They can go, aha, you did the wrong thing. That's the idea of that phrase. And so there's this man there who's at this dinner party. Of course, he could have been just, as we've heard before, uh, about this first century culture. He could have been someone who was kind of standing on the outside observing uh, these people having a dinner party. That wasn't that uncommon. 
but he could have been brought there on purpose. And, and he had this disease known as dropsy, which we might call uh, endema, I think it's called today. It's when you, your, your body retains fluid, and it's usually an indication of, of a failing heart or a failing kidney. And so he has this illness. He's, he's, he's visibly in a bad place. And it says in verse 3 that Jesus responded to the lawyers and the Pharisees. And so if you're responding to somebody, the idea is they're asking a question, but we haven't heard a question to be asked yet. And what he's doing is he's responding to their critical watching of him. He's responding to their trying to set him up. And so what does he say? He asks the question, hey, let's deal with this. It's like, is this, you almost kind of sense a, a bit of kind of frustration. Hey, is it okay to heal on the Sabbath or not? You decide, is this a good thing to do? Is this a God thing to do? And in verse 4 it says, clearly, they, they remained silent. It's like they couldn't answer. So Jesus took the man, healed him, and sent him away. And he said to them, which of you having a son or an ox that has fallen into a well on a Sabbath day will not immediately pull him out? And they could not reply to these things. So here's what's happening. Jesus knows that these guys are not looking for answers. They're not asking legitimate questions. Is Jesus really God's son? Is Jesus really God's chosen king? Uh, is, are his healings actually from God? These would be legitimate questions to ask. They're not asking those questions. They're looking for excuses to say, aha, we don't have to believe in you. But what happens when Jesus exposes this by, by asking them a question that they should have an answer to, when he ex is exposing their excuses or their excuse making, what happens? They can't say anything. They're, they're shut up by it. Now this kind of shows us something about uh, what we might call as an indication that we might be drifting towards religious unbelief. And that is when we're not able to process direct challenges in other words, we're challenged by something. The, the Holy Spirit, through God's word, challenges us by something in the same way the word incarnate here, Jesus, is challenging them. He challenges us with something, and we just can't process it. Oh, I, I don't want to think about that. It's too heavy. Oh, I, I don't want to go there. I, I don't understand that. Or I, I don't think that's right, so I'm just going to push that aside and lay that aside. We can't process it. And in a sense, this is what's going on. And it's important for us to understand this because the truth is that, that part of us following Jesus is cooperating when the Holy Spirit is challenging us on something. When God is using his word to expose where we need change, to expose what he wants us to do, to, to move us towards where he wants us to go. So if we can't process those challenges, it's a good indication that we might be drifting towards unbelief. What happens in verse 7? It says, now, uh, Jesus told the parable to those who were invited. So he's still at the dinner party, and he's using this whole situation to, to speak to these people. When he noticed, this is why, when he noticed how they chose the places of honor. Now, in Jesus' day, not unlike what we do, uh, when you were invited to a special gathering, a special feast, or a, or a uh, some sort of a, an honored dinner, there were seating places. So you, you would usually kind of, they would usually sit the tables out, sit the tables out in kind of a U-shape, and in the very center of the, uh, of the top table would be the host, and the most important people would be to his right and to his left, and then the kind of pecking order would go down and out, okay? That's kind of how it worked. 
And so the idea is Jesus sees that when these people are all coming in for the dinner, they're all taking the highest seat possible. They all want to be seen as those who should be honored. They should be in the most honored place. Now, now we do something like this similarly with weddings and such, don't we? We we have you have the wedding, uh, the wedding party. You know, they're on the kind of top table with the bride and groom at top, and the the, the kind of groomsmen on one side and the uh, bridesmen on the other. Then you might have really near that table the parents uh, of both sides of the family, then more family members, and the very back you have the cousin that nobody likes. That's what you usually have, right? And so there's kind of this pecking order. And so what Jesus is doing, he's, he's noticing this, and so he tells this parable. Listen, he, he's observing their self-exalting choices. And so he tells this parable that really is giving a, a common sense answer to this problem that they're having. He says to them, verse 8, when you are invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in a place of honor, lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him, and he who is invited by, uh, who invited you both will come and say to you, give your place to this person, and then you will begin with shame to take the lowest place. But when you are invited, go and sit in the lowest place, so that when your host comes, to, he may say to you, friend, move up higher. Then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at the table with you. Sounds pretty wise, right? Some kind of common sense. Now, now I don't know that uh, any of us have had this particular experience where we've kind of taken a seat higher than we're supposed to and we're asked to sit in a lower seat. I don't know if you've had that experience. I think it probably would be humiliating. But we've probably all done this. You see someone walk into a room. They look at you and they smile and they wave and you wave back and then they walk right past you and they're waving at somebody else. You know what I'm talking about? We've all done this, right? And you just kind of feel so embarrassed, like you're hoping nobody saw you just make a fool of yourself waving at somebody that wasn't waving at you. So we can kind of get at least a, a small portion of what he's talking about here. You don't want to put yourself in a place where you're going to be shamed. Don't assume that everything is about you, that you should be in this exalted place. But he's talking more about some kind of social etiquette. He's talking about a principle that applies specifically to us spiritually. In verse 11, what does he say? For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Now, Jesus says this several times throughout the Gospels, doesn't he? It's a main principle. It's a main principle that, that basically that he calls us to humility. Now, we see this in, even in a sense of, of salvation, a sense of, of how we know if we're, we have a place in heaven or not. This is how we see this. Oh, bless. This, is, this is what we see. It's okay. Don't worry about it. We love babies. <laughs> we see this because uh, he, here's, the, here's what I, I tend to have. I'll have conversations with people who may not even say they believe in God. But if you talk about it, they'll say, yeah, I think there might be some sort of an afterlife. Yeah? And so you talk to these people about an afterlife. And you might say to them, so if there's an afterlife, what do you think happens to you? Do you think you'll go to a good place or a bad place? You know, what do you think is going to happen to you? And they almost always say, ah, I think a good place. You know, I'm a pretty good person. I don't know for sure, but I'm a pretty good person. So I think, you know, when I die, if there's a heaven or whatever, that's where I'm going to go. That's what they assume. They're not sure, but they assume they're pretty good so they get there. But here's the thing. When you talk to someone who knows Jesus who knows what Jesus has done for them, who understands who they are without Jesus, and you ask that person, hey, when you die, do you think you'll go to heaven? They'll say, absolutely yes. Not that I deserve it, 
Not that I have, a, I have a right on my own to get there, but because of what he's done for me, I'm going to be there. See, we, we tend to see humility as talking down about ourselves, but humility is recognizing who we are before God. And so there's a reality here when he says that he, anyone who exalts themselves, they put themselves higher than where they're supposed to be, will be put down, but he who, who humbles himself will be exalted. There's something here about how we approach God and how we understand how God saves us. But there's also something here about what it means to actually walk with Jesus, to follow Jesus, because when Jesus calls us to be humble, he's actually calling us to be like him. Listen to this. In Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 to 8, here's, here's what we read. It says, You must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. Though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. When he, prepared, when he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on a cross. When we talk about, when Jesus calls us to humble ourselves, he's not calling us to do something he hasn't already done. And this is really important for us to think about. Because again, when it comes to the danger of slipping into sort of a religious unbelief, one of the things that we can see is when we're not willing to humble ourselves, that really is an act of unbelief. It's us saying, well, I don't really know that Jesus was that humble, or I don't really want to be like him. That's an act of unbelief. Now, the next thing he talks about in verse 12 is this. He also said to the man who invited him, so remember he's still at the dinner party, he's talking now from the guests to the, to the host. He, said he, also, he also said to the man who invited him, when you give a dinner or banquet... Do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you. For you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. Now, here, here's what Jesus is talking about, okay? He's not saying you can't have real relationships with your friends or with neighbors or with rich people. That's not what he's saying. He's not trying to limit relationships. He's challenging their motives. He's looking at this man who invited. He's noticing the very, quote-unquote, honorable people that he invited that were all rushing for the best place. And he's saying, why did you do this? And the reason is because it was very common in that day to invite people over whom you knew you could repay, especially if you were a poorer person, actually. Because as someone who maybe was poor, you, you didn't have like all kinds of extra cash to have someone over for a meal. So if you're feeding somebody, that might be the food you would use to feed your family the next day. So you want to invite someone over for a meal who might be able to return the favor sooner than later, hopefully. And yet Jesus says, don't do it that way. He says, that, this is not what I'm calling you to do. Instead, he says, I, what I want you to do is, I want you to call, when you invite people, why don't you invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind? Do that. Now, these would be people, of course, who in that day lived on the generosity and mercy of others. And so the idea is, these people need that free meal much more than your friends who might be able to pay you back. But there's something even bigger here that he's wanting them to see. 
He's saying, listen, instead, what you should do is you invite them and you have a blessing. And what was the blessing in verse 14? You will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. Now, as we're going to see in just a minute, the Pharisees were big fans of this idea of resurrection. This truth that, that, that after people die, believers specifically will be resurrected. We know Jesus expended that. All people will be resurrected, some to, to damnation, some to uh, eternal life. But this idea of resurrection was something that the Pharisees held on to tightly. They were looking for the next world. But here's the problem. They weren't living like that. They weren't living as if the next life was better. They were living as if this was their best life. And Jesus is calling them on this. He's calling them to live in the reality of the resurrection. Now, with all the stuff that we've been going through the last year and a half, I think all of us, all of us have been sort of knocked aside by the, the COVID thing. And all of us have known what it felt like, I think, to wonder, you know, am I going to get through this? We've been forced as a culture, as a world, to think seriously about death. Something that, to be honest, most countries around the world uh, have to deal with in, in a much harsher way than we do in our comfortable society. But, but there's something that's really important, regardless of what your opinion might be about how the crisis has been handled or how it's being handled now or, or how serious or not so serious this variant is. No matter what your opinion is, here's something that's really, really important for us as Jesus followers to hold on to. That is, we are never called to be afraid to die. We should not live as if this is our best life, so I want to do whatever it takes to make sure I'm healthy and fine. I don't want to take any risks. That's never how God calls us to live. He calls us to be those who live in the reality of the resurrection. That doesn't mean being flippant about life. It doesn't mean take up extreme sports and do stuff that's dangerous. That's not what I'm talking about. But what it means is that we go, you know, Lord, well, I, I want to be able to say like the Apostle Paul says in Philippians 1.21. He said, Paul says, for to me, living means living for Christ and dying is even better. This needs to be our mindset. See, what he's challenging the Pharisees on is, look, you talk a, big, a good talk about the resurrection. You act like what, what you're motivated by is your future resurrection, but your life doesn't show it. Your life doesn't show that. And this wasn't just Paul. This wasn't just a situation where, okay, the Apostle Paul said that because he was an apostle and he was called to get the gospel out. He, he, he could live his life that way. No. Paul writes to the, the, the new church in Thessalonica. This was a, a bunch of new Christians that had only been Christians for a matter of weeks that he had to leave kind of running their own uh, small church that just started. Listen to what he says to them. He says, now, dear brothers and sisters, we want you to know what will happen to the believers who have died so that you will not grieve like those, like people who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and was raised to life again, we also believe that when Jesus returns, he will bring back with him the believers who have died. And so, so Paul writes to these Christians that had only been Jesus followers for a matter of weeks. And he says, listen, I know some people have died. And in, in Thessalonica, anybody remember why they were dying? They were being killed for their faith, some of them. And he says, I, I want you to remember that no, no one who dies in Christ dies in vain. And when the Lord Jesus comes back, he'll bring back with him all those who have died. They will be resurrected. This is really important. 
In fact, I think this might be the most telling thing about our tendency to drift towards unbelief. We live as if our best life is right now. Now, I say this not in any way sort of pointing fingers. I say this about myself. I find myself worrying a lot about my future. I, I, I think, well, how am I going to retire? And, and how am I going to take care of my wife? And, 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 and you know, what's going to happen my, to my family later on? And, you know, and you know, what's going to happen to the church in the future? And I have all these kind of anxieties that spin around in my head and my heart. And I have to think, wait a second. Wait a second. What's the worst that can possibly happen? I could die. And then what happens? I wake up in glory. <laughs> Why do I know that? Because my Savior has died and rose again. That's how I know that. So I want to live in such a way that I say, you know what, Lord, for me, just like Paul said, for me, living means living for Christ and dying even better. I want to be one who doesn't stop taking risks. Again, not being stupid, not being foolish, not being inconsiderate of other people. I'm talking about, I want to say, Lord, Whatever it takes, let it be. Let it be. Now, lastly, we get to this same dinner party. And we see after Jesus talks about you will be paid at the resurrection, as predicted, the Pharisees get excited about it. At least one of the Pharisees gets excited. Look at verse 15. It says, when one of those who reclined at the table with him heard these things, he said, he said to him, blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. Now, he's responding so positively because they did have this conviction about the resurrection, about life after death. They did really believe this, the Pharisees did. And they did use the same sort of picture, the same metaphor for that that Jesus used, which was a banquet, which is a great picture, isn't it? Isn't that a great picture of heaven? Not like angels with like harps, you know, on clouds or something, but a big feast, laughter and food and celebration and joy. What a, what a glorious picture. It's amazing. So, so he's excited about this. But what does Jesus say in verse 16? But, and it says but on purpose, because Jesus is kind of saying, okay, you, you say that, but. But he said to him, a man once gave a great banquet and invited many. Now here Jesus is going to do something to this crowd of Jewish leaders, of Pharisees and friends. He's going to challenge them about, okay, you, you're excited about a banquet, but... Do you realize you've been invited to one? Look what happens in verse 17. At, and at that time, uh, oh, sorry, <clears throat> a man once gave, verse 16 again, a man once gave a great banquet and invited many. And at that time, at the time for the banquet, he sent his servant to say to those who had been invited, come now, for everything is now ready. So there's a big difference between liking a party and preparing for a party. Big difference. They're not the same thing. In, in this day, when Jesus is telling this parable, in this culture, when you are invited to, to a, a great gathering, a wedding feast, or a banquet to honor someone, um, a wealthy person might put on this great banquet. They would send the invitations to the people they wanted to be there. If, you, if, if that servant came to you and said, Jill, You've been invited to this banquet. It's on this date. Would you like to come? If you take that, that's like your RSVP. Yes, I plan to be there. Thank you for inviting me. 
And then what would happen is when the banquet was actually ready, they would go back to those same people, the servants would go back to the same people and say, it's now ready, come and eat. Here we go. Time to party. And it's important that we understand that this is how it would look because we can get excited about heaven. Oh, it's going to be great. The banquet's going to be amazing. But we're not really preparing for it. We're actually not responding to the invitation. Look what he says in verse... What verse am I on? I just lost it. Verse 18, thank you. But they all like began to make excuses. The first said to him, I have bought a field and I must go out and see it. Please have me excused. And another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen and I go to examine them. Please have me excused. And another said, I have married a wife and therefore I cannot come. Now, now, now these excuses that are given, it's important to recognize that there's nothing necessarily wrong or evil about the excuses themselves. In other words, the activity that, 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 that they're distracted with, it's not bad activity. So, so, that, so that when one says, um, look, I've just bought a field. I need to make sure it's, it's sound. I've given the money. I want to make sure there's nothing wrong with this field. It's prepared correctly. That's good, that's good responsibility, isn't it? If you've purchased land, you want to make sure that land's ready to be planted or whatever. And, and this idea of, I've bought five yoke of oxen. Now, that's a lot of oxen, so you know. The average sort of farmer in that day would have had maybe one or two yoke of oxen. So he said, I just bought five yoke of oxen. He's basically saying, look, I'm very wealthy. I have a big responsibility. I need to make sure that these oxen are ready to be worked. Because obviously, the bigger the, the business, the bigger the chance there is for failure if you don't take care of it. Again, he's being responsible. And what about just the fact, I've married a wife. You know, the Old Testament says that if uh, someone was newly married, the first year that someone was married, they couldn't be pulled into military service. They needed to stay there and be with their wives. So it could be that he's just taking that principle the next step. I'm married. I've got to be responsible for my family. And isn't that, again, a good thing? We need to take care of our families, taking, making sure our, our relationships are prioritized. But here's what's actually going on, okay? They're using these good things... Or these good things that they are, are being responsible in are becoming the enemy of the best thing, being invited to this banquet, specifically the ban banquet that Jesus is invited them to. And again, i got to say, this is kind of what I see us doing all the time. This is what I see the Western church do all the time. We focus on good things. Oh, let's, you know, we, the banquet's important. Yes, yes, yes. But, you know, we've just bought a church. We've got to make sure the church is running the way it's supposed to run. It looks the way it's supposed to look. We do this. Or, 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 or what about this? Um, I've just bought five yokes of oxen. Look, I, I'm a responsible businessman, and the reason I can give so much to the church is because I work all these hours. So I've got to do these hours. I don't really have time to do this other thing. Or probably this one. Hey, I'm just wanting to be committed to my wife and children right now. This is the really, that's the, my priority. My, my ministry is just my family. That's what I need to do. That all sounds good, doesn't it? But often that good is the enemy to the best. It's a, it's a funny thing. When we say, okay, Lord, I, I want to seek you first, your kingdom, your righteousness. When we do that, you know what ends up happening? The other relationships in our life line into play, fall into place. I don't want to say too much about that because this is what's going to be talked about next week, I'm sure. The point is, these guys are doing this. And so what happens in verse 21? It says, so the servant came and reported these things to his master, and the master of the house became angry. 
and said to his servants, Go out quickly to the streets and the lanes of the city and bring in the poor and the crippled and the, bl uh, the blind and the lame. Now, now, we might think, gosh, he's overreacting, being angry with this in this parable, but this was maybe one of the most disrespectful things you can do. If you're invited to a great banquet, you've received that invitation, and then you just kind of blow it off for normal, everyday responsibilities, that's basically snubbing somebody. And, and, and I think Jesus uses the idea angry, one, because if he told this parable and said they were disappointed, it would be, no, that's not true, they'd be angry. <laughs> but also because... We need to understand that, that every good thing in our life, everything that would be on that list that would be an excuse for us not to say yes to the invitation, all those good things come from the hand of our good God. And so to, to, to not thank him, to not say, Lord, this is all from you, I want to follow after you, would rightly make him angry. And so the servant said, Sir, what you commanded has been done, and still there is room. So what's the master say? Verse 23, And the master said to the servant, Go out to the highways and hedges and compel people to come in that my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of those men who were invited shall taste my banquet. Now there's a, in a real sense, this parable is to not just these Pharisees at this table, but to the Jewish nation as a whole. They should have known. They've, they've been invited as God's covenant people to the feast. They should have known the feast is going to start, right? And so when Jesus comes on the scene and says, now it's time to start to feed. It's time for us to begin the feast together. They're like, nah, we're not sure you're the right guy. So they, they should have known better in one sense. But there's also something else here that I think it's important for us to see. And that is, listen, that their unwillingness, the people in this parable, their unwillingness to respond does not mean that the invitation was not sincere. And, and you know what's amazing to me about this? Is that God invites and he invites and he invites and he invites, whether it's through people or just by his spirit and we're just kind of convicted by something, he invites and he invites and he invites and we think, well, if God was really wanting me, why doesn't he chase me down? As if he's not really sincere in his invitation. I remember talking to a friend of mine who unfortunately decided to walk away from the Lord. She divorced her husband and uh, is just kind of living her own life. And she said to me, she said, she was telling me kind of some of the things that she was frustrated about, why she decided to go this direction. But she said to me, she goes, you know, I do miss him. I do miss the Lord. But if he wants me, he has to come chase me down. Now, the thing about that, which really broke my heart was, one, I think she was being sincere, but was that it was like, I wanted to say, well, what do you think he's been doing? <laughs> he's been chasing you down all this time. See, just because we don't want it doesn't mean he doesn't want us. But this is the, maybe the scariest and most serious part or serious indicator that we are moving into religious unbelief is when we still give lip service to Jesus, but we don't enter in to his banquet. So, how do we respond to this? I want to ask you some questions. I want you guys to think about some things, okay? I want to give you a chance to respond to what we're talking about here. Let me ask you some, some questions. And these are the kinds of questions that I hope that you're willing to answer in your heart of hearts. 
You may even need to write down some things to think about and pray about later. But the first question I'd ask you is, are you processing the challenges that the Holy Spirit is bringing? When there's a conviction, when there's a challenge that you, you, that, come, that you come across when you're maybe reading your Bibles or when you hear a sermon or when you're in conversation with somebody and they're just talking about what a priority should be, when that challenge comes up, are you processing that or are you just kind of silent and then walking away? Kind of trying to ignore that. I'm not saying this to condemn anybody. I'm saying this because God only challenges us to change us, never to condemn us. He wants to change us. He calls us to respond to that. If you believe Jesus isn't alive, are you setting your hope on him? Is your life about that fact? I'm finding the older I get and the sometimes the more stressful life seems to get, I'm finding myself having to sort of answer that question. Do I really believe that Jesus is alive? And if I really believe that he's alive and I'm going to be resurrected, is my life reflecting that? Is my life really lived for him and his kingdom? If you don't believe in Jesus or you don't believe he's alive, why not? Why don't you believe that Jesus is alive? Seriously. And if you don't, I'd really love to know why. If you're watching this online, send us a, send us a little uh, message. Tell us why you don't believe he's alive. I'd love to engage with you on that. Do you like the idea of heaven or do you long for it? You see, longing for heaven doesn't make you irresponsible on earth. It's just the opposite. When we long for heaven, when we long for God's kingdom to come in its fullness, for things to be as they should be, when we long for that, it actually makes us better workers, better neighbors, better spouses, better parents, because we want to please the one who's preparing a place for us rather than just trying to make our best life be now. Along the same lines with that, what good thing in your life is becoming a God thing? Is there something in your life right now that, that is competing for your affections? Could be family, could be a job, could be a hobby, could be a dream. And that thing is, is could be, a, I'm sure it's a good thing, but that thing is becoming exalted above God himself and it's becoming a God thing, it's becoming an idol. If you can identify that thing, you might want to write that down or make a mental note, but also, who can you pray about with this? Because I know I understand that sometimes these things come up and we're, we're embarrassed or we don't know who to talk to you about these things. But, but think of someone, find someone you can go and say, this is what I think I've been exalting above God in my life. And, and pray with them about that. And most importantly, have you responded to Christ's invitation? Have you responded to Christ's invitations when he says, come follow me? When he, says, when he says, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. When he says, anyone who comes to me, I will in no way cast out. Are you responding to that? Are you coming to him? Have you come to a place where you believe that Jesus, the Jesus of the scriptures, that when he died on the cross, he paid for your sins? That as he predicted three days later, he came back to life. 
that he ascended to the Father, that he sent his Holy Spirit, that he's coming again. Have you come to that place yet? Have you responded to his invitation to believe? These are questions that we want to answer before God. Father, we know <laughs> that you know our, our many sins, Lord. In fact, you, you know ones that we're not even aware of. Lord, we, we, we agree with Jeremiah when he, when he wrote that if it were not for your compassions, Lord, we would be consumed. But your mercies are new every morning. They endure forever. Lord, we, we just want to confess. We want to say the same thing that you say about our sin. We want to call sin, sin, Lord, including our unbelief. Because you're worthy to be trusted, Lord Jesus, and when we don't trust you, that's unbelief. We want to say the same thing that you say about our sin, that Christ died for it. And if we confess, you are faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. We thank you that your body was broken for us to make us one body. We thank you that your blood was spilled for us to cleanse us and make us your children. We're thankful, Lord. Thank you that you endure with us. Thank you for inviting us over and over again. Lord, may we just come to you now and enjoy the feast of your mercy. Thank you, Lord. Thanks for loving us, Lord. Thanks for sticking with us, Lord. Lord, we just pray you'd help us today as we leave this place to continue to follow you. We pray that you'd fill us with your spirit that we might love one another. And we commit this next week to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. God bless you guys. Thanks for coming.